All right. Well, welcome back to our study in the book of Romans. We're in lesson 25 today. And we're in that section of the book of Romans, chapter 6 to 8, that is dealing with sanctification. And as you know, we're in the ninth part of that particular section of the book. And today's section that we're looking at specifically is Romans 8, verses 9 to 17, which I've simply titled, Led by the Spirit, coming directly from verse 14. In the last couple weeks in the United States, uh, there has been news uh, that there has been a revival at Asbury and, uh, and spread somewhat to other schools and some churches. And uh, I'm not here to do a talk on revival and revivalism. There are, there are fake revivals. There are God revivals. There are many things. But I say this, in hearing even the idea that there might be revival, God's people should be encouraged. And, and just looking at it myself at Asbury and others, I don't know. I don't know what God is or isn't doing there. But, but I do know this. Um, that young people who went to a worship service on campus haven't left in a month. Um, they've continued to pray. Um, there's been repentance and salvation and sanctification that's happened. The Spirit can work in the midst of crazy, and all revivals are not equal. Uh, God can revive a few, and then nonsense happen. God can revive a few, and there's a glorious revival like the Welsh revivals or the early colonial revivals, the first wave and the second wave of awakening. But Jonathan Edwards, early on in American history, in the, in the Second Great Awakening, wrote a book called Religious Affections to talk about how do you look at revival when it is happening around you? How do you discern, if you will, how God is at work and how man is at work? And you always have to apply that scripture that strong men try to take the kingdom of God by force. And that usually happens in revival. Individuals try to gain ascendancy or they're the voice of the revival or men grab onto what God's doing and, and it becomes revivalism where it becomes a thing. But we should rejoice insofar as God is at work. And I'm excited when I hear about the potential that revival might be taking place. And revival is always centered in the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who brings revival. And revival is that stage in which, by its very nature, revive is not necessarily the saving of unsaved, but the reviving of God's church. Now, many get saved during that time. That is typical in a revival. But it is a work of the Holy Spirit within His own church to clean out the church and bring it back to its place of its first love. And when He does that, then it leads to reformation. Reformation is reforming the institutions and the walk and how the church does life together and worship. Reformation is more to do with theology and the practice and ecclesiology of the gathered saints after they've been revived. And so when we talk about the Reformation, even historically, much of the first number of years of the Reformation were revival. The salvation of individuals, the explosion of the work of the Holy Spirit that led to the reforming of doctrine and other things. And so in that, we know that we need that in our own life. We know that we need that in America today. We know it in our church and we are not left without the Holy Spirit. So I want to say that last piece, historically. 
revival is not the only way to live the Christian life. Because then it's revivalism and you have to wait every Sunday to come and have an experience. And have a revival so that you can live the Christian life. That's saying that the moments that God has spiked in history where there's this huge work of the Spirit have to be experienced every single Sunday is not correct. Because the work of the Spirit is there every single day to do the work that revival is supposed to lead to. So you don't need a revival every time, but you need to live in constant, con controlled by the Holy Spirit. All right, all that to be said. So let's jump into our text today then, and look at Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 17, where we are given four ministries of the Holy Spirit that tell us that we are Christians. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the adoption by the Holy Spirit, and the assurance or testimony or witness of the Spirit. These four are in verses 9 to 17, and they all point to this last piece that you can know, that you can know that you are a child of God. That's what this section is about. Four ministries of the Holy Spirit to the believer that lead to the reality that you can know for sure that you have eternal life. That's what this section is. Alright, page one. Now, we walk according to the Spirit, verses 9 to 11. However, starts from last week where we learned that no one in the flesh can please God and if you're in the flesh, you're not saved. And there are only two kinds of people. That's where we looked at last week. There's saved people who are in the flesh. Unsaved, rather. <laughs> in the flesh. And there are those who are saved which are in the Spirit. So, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul starts this section on helping us by using the word if. Right? You're not unsaved. You're saved. If indeed, what? The Spirit dwells in you. That's the first indicator light that you're saved. But, contrast, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. How do I know I'm a believer? I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Difficulty is, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit does not come with an outward manifestation that is universal since the early days of the book of Acts. And so what we have is we all get the Spirit at the same time, on the day, or not at the same time, but the time of our conversion. But there's no universal external evidence given that the indwelling has occurred. So God has given others about the leading, the sense of adoption and assurance, the testimony of the Spirit, to be the internal witness that helps the believer know that the Spirit is actually there. Because three things are happening, the Spirit does. So you're like, oh, that's what the Spirit does. Therefore, I know I'm a believer. And so, continuing on in verse 11, or verse 10. If Christ is in you, oh, the Holy Spirit and Christ. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit, small s, is alive because of righteousness. I'm giving a general commentary before I get to my own notes. That is what is it saying. If Christ is in you by imputation, 
and that is by this righteousness which He brought to you, if you have been born again, your spirit, small s, is alive because of the imputation of Christ and you've been justified. See, what the Spirit is telling us here is, what Paul's telling us, if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, then this Holy Spirit who regenerated you, Paul's already talked about in those other chapters, then your spirit is alive now. Your mind, will, and affections are able now to respond to God because of the imputation, the righteousness of Christ. He's setting you up to get the internals of what's going on. You have the Holy Spirit plus a revitalized, renewed, born-again, new creation is what he's telling you. The Spirit is now alive. So it's not the Holy Spirit overcoming your dead old person, but the Holy Spirit helping you now as the new, revived person. So he's telling you what's going on. But you also have the flesh. And so in so many words, the flesh is small compared to the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit inside of you, the flesh, and when we talk about the mind, the will, and the affections of the person, we're talking about what Paul is calling here, small s, spirit. The soul, the spirit. We are now born again so that the mind, will, and affections are freed now from the old Adam, and we're now free to obey God, to understand, to desire, and to choose what God wants. Okay, so Paul's anatomy is helping us there. Okay, actually I'm at my notes now. Alright. A. So the indwelling of the Spirit, verse 9, as opposed to the indwelling of sin in chapter 7 that Paul talked about. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit from the moment of conversion. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul tells the Corinthians, who are the worst church up to that point, that all those who were believers all possessed the Holy Spirit. They'd all been made to drink of one Spirit. But if you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. You know, the book of Jude tells us that those who are false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. Look at this verse. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last times there will be mockers, following their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. It is not enough to consider yourself a spiritual person, as I noted last week. I'm very spiritual. Really what we mean by that if we're an unbeliever is and we don't know it is, God gave me a spirit and it is still alive in that it can think and desire and, and do things. And God put eternity in my heart. Every unbeliever has eternity in their heart. A desire for eternal things. But they're not focused on the true God and they're blind to their own sin and all those things. But they are spiritual but into the wrong things. Um... Theological knowledge, emotional experiences, church membership, family ties, religious rituals, being in Dave's class, do not prove that you are indwelt by the Spirit. So how can you know if the Spirit indwells you? Well, that's verse 14. That's where we're going to get to. All those who are led by the Spirit, it says, are children of God. I'll tell you one thing. I know this for sure. That phrase, led by the Spirit, is understood in about 32 different ways. 
And so whatever you fit in that basket called led by the Spirit, that's going to be the way you test yourself whether you're, in the, whether you're a Christian. And so we need to make sure we're taking it from the words of the text. So how can you know, verse 14, we're going to get there in a minute, the indwelling of the Spirit is not a feeling, nor is it an ecstatic experience. The Spirit does not come by water baptism or any other religious rite. Here's a simple question. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone to save you from your sins? If you have, you have the Holy Spirit. Now that's not the evidence. That's the cause and effect. How you got the Spirit was through conversion, regeneration, conversion, and when you trusted Christ, you immediately had the Holy Spirit. Didn't sense it necessarily at that moment, but you did. But have you come to the place where by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and the finished work He did on the cross. You're not trusting in yourself. You're not trusting in what you've done. And you're trusting in Him alone. If you come to that place, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, but how do I know that? You, you know, But without which, you can't have the Holy Spirit. Because only those who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit. That's all that's saying. And do you live for spiritual things? That's what Paul's going to get to here in the next things. Do I live for the things of the Spirit or the things of the world if I'm honest? What is the orientation of my life? And I would say this, maybe my best line, right? If you're at war with sin, you're probably at peace with God. That's what I think this whole passage is teaching. If you're at war with sin, you're probably at peace with God. If you hate your own sin and desire to be holy, you're almost certainly a Christian. Now, there's a religious way to think you hate your sin, and that's a whole conversation we're going to get into. But I'm talking to Christians today, and if you're not a believer here today, then I encourage you to come to Christ, right? But the vast majority of you in this room are going to be believers, and the point of it is, if you hate sin, and you hate what it's doing in your life, and you want to be holy, and you're in a struggle and a war with that, you're a Christian. That was chapter 7 telling us that would be normative. And this is telling you the war can be, you can be at victory, but the war is an indicator within that you're actually a believer. It's not an indicator that you're not a believer. And number four, if your life is unspiritual, fleshly, you have no grounds of assurance, right? So what do these things mean? B, you now have life in spite of your dying body, verse 10, because of the indwelling spirit. The effects of sin still plague your body, which is dying. Spiritually, you are alive because of the righteousness of God, which you now have received by faith in Christ, verse 10. And that is verse 11, God will resurrect your body through the life-giving Holy Spirit. The indwelling spirit is a guarantee that your body will be raised. Look at verse 11. But if the spirit of him... Him the Father, but if the Spirit of the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, not the Spirit, but the Father raised Jesus from the dead. If the Spirit, who belongs to the Father, and the Father, speaking of Him, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, the Father, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit. The Father raised Christ from the dead, and the Father is going to raise you from the dead. Your body. 
because he's already told your soul, your soul is alive here. That was verse 10. Your spirit's alive. But I want you to know, Paul says, your body's going to get back up. And it's going to just like be Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead from the Father. You're going to be raised from the dead by the Father through the work of the Spirit. So anyway, at the bottom of the page, the last two dots. You will be raised unto glory like the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation provided by God redeems the entire man, including the body. Now some of us, regarding that, and we're going to the next page, some of us know that even in a resurrection body, it's probably not getting any better than this. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Jim, for all that confidence. All right, page two. Verses 12 to 14, then. We get into the crux of the matter. Paul's talked about the indwelling, but now he's going to talk about the leading of the Spirit and our own efforts at mortifying or putting to death the sin deeds in our flesh. Verses 12 to 14. So then, based on that, so then, so then what? Knowing that your body's going to get back alive, knowing that you are alive in the Spirit and reborn and regenerated, knowing that the Spirit is within you, how would I then know that? So then, brethren, we are not under obligation, no, not to the flesh. We are under obligation, but not to the flesh. Why? Because that led to death. To live according to the flesh. Verse 13. Why do I know for? It's Paul's way of saying because. Alright? We're not under any obligation to the flesh, he says. Why? This is his first reason. Because, or for, if you are living according to the flesh... You're going to die. Okay? The person who's killing you is not somebody to be obligated to. And he's already said in chapter 6 and 7, we're no longer under the flesh. You must die. But if, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I'm going to talk a lot about this, but I want to make note of Paul's clear terms. If, by the Spirit... You're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You will live. Why is this super important, the exact wording? Well, it's always important, but this is it. If it said, if you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live, then you could work your way to heaven. Or you just run out of here and go, man, I'm going to work hard. But it says, if by the Spirit. You can't put the deeds of the flesh to death. Unless you have the Spirit. It's an argument Paul started to make. He said, unless you have the Spirit, you're not a believer. You have no part of Christ. But if you have the Spirit, then I would expect to say, so then, I would see that in manifest ways, the Spirit is now doing something in you to cause this putting to death of the flesh. It's by the Spirit this is happening. It's actually an evidence. This is not... This passage is not primarily telling you how to do that. There's a bunch of passages in the book of Romans that are going to go on to explain how to live a holy life. Romans 12, 1 and 2, for example. But Paul's making note of it here in a larger context to say, if you're a person who hates your sin and you're working to put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you are being led by the Spirit. Let me go on to verse 14. For, it's a second purpose clause Paul has here. For, all who are being led by the Spirit of God 
These are the sons of God. Let me slow that down again. Why is Paul saying the word for? So, we've been born again, so our bodies are going to get up, so the Spirit has given us life, we're no longer obligated to the flesh, we have nothing to do with that, it's just trying to kill you, because, Paul says, because those who are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, they indeed, verse 14, because they are the ones who are being led by the Spirit. Paul is using this as an argument of evidence. If you hate sin, and you're warring against it, and you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. He doesn't mention which ones exactly. We're going to talk about it. He doesn't give you a method. He doesn't say if you pray at 6 a.m. But if you are doing this, this is an evidence that you are a believer. That is what he's telling you. And so, let me look deeper then. Number one, sanctification is the Spirit's work. And it's our work. We know that, right? Both the Spirit and the believer are active. The nature of sanctification is by the Spirit's power to continually, habitually, and actively go on putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Look at verse 13's actual words. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death, the Greek text there is that ever-present tense, right? A continuous activity. If you're putting it to death, not if you've put it to death, that you've reached a plateau, and not if you've got to the sanctified life where you had an experience and you've now put your death, and now you're going to live a perfect life. That's a view of sanctification. But if you're in a war, putting it to death in a continuous present tense, then that is an evidence that you indeed have the Spirit. Because why? The Spirit is at war with the flesh. And so if the Spirit is at war with the flesh, Galatians chapter 5, the Spirit wars with the flesh. If the Spirit's at war with the flesh and it's happening inside of you, you should see evidence of a battle. And you should sometimes feel like a victim. Like, I have a war going on in here! Right? should be crazy village sometimes because it's a war happening in you and with you. So a few things to think about. You are actively involved in your sanctification, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says... Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I love Paul's honesty of his own life. It's a war. It's a race. It's a fight. He wants to win. Sanctification is ultimately caused by God, though. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for, because, it is God who is working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And sanctification is an ongoing process. Not that I've already obtained it, or become like Dave Doyle, or have already become perfect. So you can use me as an example, because everyone in the room is like, no, no, that's not, that's not right. We already know that. But not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I might lay hold for that which I've also been laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's Paul. Paul's running in a race. Paul knows that the internal source is from the Holy Spirit. We have to work it out. And Paul knows he has not reached that point. And he's writing Philippians near, um, fairly near the end of his career, the last five years or so of his, of his ministry. B, which deeds are you supposed to eradicate then? If you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now I just want to say this because I've alluded to the idea. If you go home and you make a list. No more McDonald's. Okay, got to be at the top of everybody's list, right? All right, you know. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to be angry anymore. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to waste my time. I'm being very generic. Nothing. And then I'm also going to be nicer to my family. Okay, a lot of things tied together. There they are. If you put to deed some of these, I mean, put to death some of these things, one could feel pretty good about yourself. Okay? There can be a list, and we can do that. And here's the dilemma. It's kind of like you need a list. What am I working on, right? What deeds of the flesh am I dealing with? But we have to make sure of just one thing. It's not all externalized. Because the deeds of the flesh start in here. They don't start out there. And so a Pharisee can do those or not do those and still not go to heaven and still not have the Spirit. However, a Pharisee can't do a lot of the things that it implies in here. And we're going to talk about the positive side because the whole point is the next section is going to be the positive. If you have the Spirit of adoption, you cry out, Abba, Father. And it's not just an external call. If your heart cries, Abba, Father, that's the positive reality, that worship of the heart is an expressed evidence that you are a believer. So which deeds do I have to eradicate? You cannot mortify sin by denying legitimate body appetites. That's called asceticism. Colossians chapter 2, Paul warns against a certain kind of religion within the church. If, if or since you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, verse 21, do not handle do not taste. Do not touch. Well, so much for your Baptist churches. <laughs> okay. Some of you didn't. Verse 22. Which all refer to things destined to perish with youths in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Paul is not talking to the Colossians here about becoming believers. He's talking to professed believers who now there's Gnosticism and all kinds of stuff going on, proto-Gnosticism here. And that's a whole configuration in itself. But to the point, religious activities in which you do ascetic things and become a Stoic, in which you put away things and now you feel like, I have put away that which is no longer touchable or tasteable or enjoyable. Verse 23, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value 
against fleshly indulgence. That's back to Romans 8, the point of Paul making is that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh. What are the deeds of the flesh? Well, Galatians 5 gives us a list, a list of those type of things. We looked at it last week. But they happen to start in the heart and they desire to do different things. Your body is not bad, but it is the place where sin tries to gain control and the deeds of the flesh go beyond what your body does. Um, I had choices to make today. I could either ground my entire talk down to one verse and be here for the rest of my life and teach Romans until 2027. Or I had to move with what I thought the spirit of the big picture was as evidences of our salvation. But only to plan to come back, obviously, in chapters 12 to 16, where Paul works out the Christian ethic of how to do these things. My hope would be give a series of talks on sanctification in terms of practice. What do we do in terms of practice? But that's not Paul's major point here. So C, what steps can you take to put to death the deeds of the body? Here's where I would start. Okay? Because the deeds of the body, the, the deeds that the body does come from the heart. I would start by understanding what is sin and how does sin work. What is my enemy and what should I expect in a war? So here's some encouragement. You guys know the Word of God. Here's a few things to remind yourself. Number one, sin has a pattern. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Sin always begins, or the, the steps that lead to sin Wow, they've got a crazy life going on here. Mind, will, affections. You're going to find that sin almost always, if you will, targets the affections. Eve saw that the fruit looked good and she desired it. It's a combo platter of going, oh yeah, oh yeah, give me a triple cheeseburger. That's right, that's right. Almost always it deceives through the affections. It encourages and incites the affections to want, to desire. There are many desires that can come from it, different kinds of desire we'll talk about in a minute. It is then usually that the mind is deceived. Now, the mind is the beginning place of holiness, and it is also the place that you can't, you can't fight the affections that come from the flesh unless your mind is settled on the things of the Spirit and you know the Word, etc., but it's usually the flesh desires that rise up and then the mind begins to negotiate. Right? We're going to negotiate. And you're like, you know, God forgave me for that in the past. I'll probably be alright if I do that. Or, it's not that bad, right? Just one more time. And then I'm going to stop doing this forever. We negotiate with terrorists. But it's the lust that comes, the desire. So, verse 15. Then when lust has conceived the value of birth, it gives birth to sin. How does it conceive? It cannot conceive on its own. Lust is just a power, a force, a desire, a strong impulse. But it has to be wed, married with the mind. So that the birth takes place through the will. 
That's how, when it is conceived, when it's brought together, when the egg and the, the seed come together, this is where this all happens. And that is, the affections want it, the mind okays it. It rationalizes it. It decides it's true. It's, it, you never decide to do anything you don't believe in. Even at the point of a gun, if you were to be put under a point of a gun and said, you must do this, your desire to live, your desire to live with your mind telling you, this would, I need to do this. It's not because you chose what you're in, but the point is, at the end of the day, with our affections and our minds, we choose the course of our action. And that is what, how sin comes to be conceived. You will agree with it at some level, theologically, experientially, whatever it is, your mind will then tell you, go ahead, bro. Be that guy. And then with your will, sin is not just conceived, but it's born. The problem with the demon baby... Right? Raiders. Right? The, the demon baby that comes out of there now is going to lead to death. Right? So that's, that's the point. You have to know sin has a pattern. It typically starts with the affections desiring something. And it's not always a force of power. It can be a force of life. And we're going to talk about that when we get to 1 John. But in James chapter 4, you have to know the world, the flesh, and the devil are active. James chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your desires that wage war in your members? We know if you're into ACBC, you're into the Bible, and you counsel people, that to me, this is the best passage to talk to people who are in a quarrel. Right? In a marriage quarrel or whatever, you always start there and says, what is the source of that conflict among you? I don't know. I think it's their ill behavior. Carla and I were actually counseling a couple one time, and we said to the, the wife, what is the problem? And she said, I'll tell you what the problem is. People will just not obey me. Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? That's why there's a conflict. You lust, but you don't get it. So you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask of God properly, right? You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Change my husband, change my wife so I can be happy. So that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He who jealously, he jealously desires the spirit, which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. My point is, there are three players. The world, the flesh, and the devil... And they work in on the system, right? All Christians know this, but we just refresh our course. That the world, and the flesh, and the devil, they're, they're all in a big system together. And that's why when the scripture says, if you're living according to the flesh, how would I picture that? Externally, you'd picture it as worldly wise men. The next verse. What does the world look like? 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, 
but it is from the world. How do I know I'm a fleshly person? Most of my life is consumed with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When we deal with our sin, we begin with the reality that any time we break from God, we begin with the pride in its general sense, which is to live autonomous from God, to think we're our own person, we make our choice. But typically in counseling, my find is that the second question when you start dealing with things is what is the source of the particular sin? And usually there's external realities, and so they'll say, I got in a quarrel with this person, or I stole something, or I did this wrong thing. That's the presenting problem. But then you come to the question is, if you just go in here, you go, well, we have a presenting answer. We have like a root answer to that, man. We've, I'll tell you what the answer to that is. You know, don't be angry anymore, be joyful. Uh, don't, don't do, well, those are true, right? They're true on that level. But you have to go down a level and say, what is it that is driving that thing? And I'm going to mention one in specific. When men who I've counseled in the last 39 years as a pastor, if they're dealing with pornography, they're dealing with adultery, they're dealing with sexual sin, um, you might be surprised that often it's not the root is lust of the flesh. So explain man comes and he says, I've committed adultery. Think about leaving my wife. I'm like, okay. Don't do that. So now what? Where's this coming from, Dave? I thought I would love the Lord. I thought it was whatever. If I immediately just track, well, it's the lust of the flesh. That's where you would find adultery source. You committed adultery out of lust. But guys, we all know that men run away with women who are not as pretty as their wives. It doesn't explain the heart. It's an external manifestation. Why do men commit adultery? It's rarely because the woman was just beautiful. Right? It's, it's these other things. The pride of life. I thought it would lead me to power. My trophy wife. I'm, I'm 67. I have a Corvette. And chains. And a low-flung shirt. Prestige. I want to walk in that restaurant with my 22-year-old bride. It's, it's position. Whatever. Sometimes adultery has nothing to do with the sex. Right? Okay. And sometimes it's the lust of the eyes. You go, how did that go? For some reason, entanglement of a desire for more things, whatever, can lead you to relationships that you think will promote that. An allegiance, an alliance. I say all that to say, that's only one. Women, there's plenty for you, there's plenty for men. The reality is this. It's not always easy to find out where the sin is coming from to put to death. If you start over here and you say, he committed adultery, and your first thing is, okay man, we're going to need to get you off the pornography, put a uh, filter on your screen, uh, do all that. Those are good things. I, I do those things. I go through a 60-day work thing with a guy who's dealing with pornography. And there's a plan. But you're always measuring back to why. What is the driving idolatry? What is the driving force that really is making you do this? We all know you can be in a meeting, everybody votes on something, and you vote all together yes. 
but they're not all voting for the same reasons. There's a driving passion or value that people have. I say all that to just be the warning of, we know that sin works in mysterious ways, and don't take the easy answer with your sin. Right? If there's a pattern of sin in your life, don't take the easy answer. Take the real answer and say, why? That's what James 4 is saying. Why are there quarrels among you? Why is there sin happening? What's going on? And find the root. We don't always understand ourselves. We need counsel. We need the Word of God. We need other people to speak into our life. But rarely the easy answer I have found is sufficient to deal with the issue. It's finding out, why do I really do that? It's because I wanted to be famous, or I wanted to be this, or I wanted to be seen to be smart, or I wanted to... When you get down to those issues, you begin to deal with the real issue to attack. Does that, that make sense? Okay. Uh, Matthew 4, at the bottom of the page, is simply to express, in so many words, two things. We're about to talk about being led by the Spirit. Note that in Matthew 4, 4, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How do you know you're a child of God? You've been led by the Spirit. Surprise! <laughs> okay. Matthew 4, 1 to 11 is simply telling us that Jesus was tempted in those three manners on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Right? Those are the three categories that Satan attempted to, to tempt Jesus. So let's break those down the best we can. We're not saying they're perfectly arranged. But Jesus was brought up on a high mountain. And what was he, what was he going to see there? Right, the stones to bread. Okay, what's the second thing? Right, he's going to see the kingdoms, and you can have all these if you just bow down and worship me. Okay, and what was the other one? Yeah, jump off the temple, and the Father's going to catch you, right? The angel's going to catch you. No, that's it. All right. A lot of times when you look at these, they're not perfect category jumpers, but stones to bread typically would be the lust of the flesh. He was hungry. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He's being tempted in that one zone. Hey, give in to your natural desires and all that, and just worship me. That's what made it wrong. Um, and then the, uh, the pride of life and the, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes I would connect to, he sees the kingdoms of the world, what he can possess. And then the pride of life is, I can run my own life, and I can control it, but the point of it is, no, you can't jump off the temple. It's presumptuous. It puts God to the test. You're not your own God. You don't call your own shots. All of that to say. All right, let's go to the next page. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Don't be misled about spiritual guidance. The Bible never teaches you to seek or expect mystical spiritual guidance. A lot of people believe, even good and godly Christians, even mature Christians, that when they just read this one verse out of context is, whoever's led by the Spirit is a child of God, is that I trust God for guidance. That's the view. That leading me is guiding me to do activities for Him. Go to the mission field, do whatever. But that is not at all, in my estimation, what this word lead means here. And I'm going to try to show you that textually. But the Bible never teaches you to seek these mystical experiences. Deuteronomy. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Okay, don't do that. Check. One who uses divination or one who practices witchcraft or one who interprets omens or sorcerer 
or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable in the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. A whole category inclusive of the oracle of Delphi approach to, to, to life. That is, I have to seek a, some divine omen or something in order to live the Christian life. Yeah, he was, he was sinning when he put out the fleece because God had already told him it was going to happen. But he didn't trust the Lord, so he wanted a sign that it was going to happen. But God had already told him, this is going to happen. He's like, but how? I want to put a sign out to see, right? So he was actually sinning because he had revelation. Because God is merciful. You know, it's like Rahab's lie. Rahab lied, we should never lie. But he blessed Rahab's lie because of her faith behind it was, I know that Yahweh is behind this mission, you know. And it's Corrie Ten Boom and her sister, you know, in the hiding place, uh, hiding Jews in their house against, uh, in Nazi, you know, German occupation. And them lying at the door, well, there's nobody here. But then her sister decides, I can't lie. And when the Nazis come to the door, and they ask, and they ask the sister, remember this. Corrie Ten Boom's sister says, they're hidden in the wall under the thing back there. And the soldiers started laughing, and they're like, oh, yeah. And they just left. You know, but, but the point is, God will sometimes, you know, he will bless things that we know is wrong, but because he has a greater purpose. You know, so. Very good. So, a wicked generation seeks a sign. We know that. The Bible is God's complete and sufficient revelation so that uh, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction um, so that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. We're meant to focus upon what God has revealed in Scripture, right? God's plan for the future is not ours to know. Deuteronomy 29.29 The things which are revealed belong to you. The things that are not revealed, they don't belong to you. Too often, as Christians, we spend a lot of time looking for the unrevealed. God, show me your will. Show me what to do. Should I buy the Mazda or the Honda? Buy the Beamer. Buy the Beamer. We already told you that doesn't work, right? So B, what about cases in the Bible which God does provide supernatural guidance? Yes, the scripture examples are clear and unmistakable, supernatural, and verifiable, not vague impressions. The New Testament never instructs you to seek or expect such guidance of vague impressions. God is speaking to me. I'm getting the woo-woo. The people in the Bible, other than I think in one case where I can think of, where the young boy Samuel doesn't know if it's the voice of the Lord, and he has to go and ask. Basically, if God is speaking to you in the Bible, you know it. And the idea that I have to seek for some sign or some inner experience of being led by the Holy Spirit uh, can drive you out of your mind and also lead you into all kinds of mischief. Um, Deuteronomy 18, 20-22 just simply tells us, Hey, if somebody says this is going to happen in the name of the Lord, and they prophesy, or they say God said, or you should do this because the Lord told you, verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. It goes on to tell you you should put him to death. How then does the Spirit lead you? The Holy Spirit causes you to come along. 
Man, if you're going to just listen to one point and put the Donkey Kong thing down for two minutes, this will be your point in the class today to make it happen. And that is, when it says the word, those who are led by the Spirit, the Greek word there could not be understood to mean led in the same way as guidance. I.e., when we think of led, we mean he tells us or you know, we follow what he's doing and we, he's leading us somewhere. But that word here is not that. It's actually a word meaning to compel to do. He's making you do this. Those who can't stop trying to be holy are children of God. Let me explain. Look at those few verses there. I use the same Greek word translated brought or arrest. Matthew 21, 7. And they brought the donkey and the colt. The donkey and the colt are not following anybody's lead. Now you can make an imagery. Yes, they are. They're being pulled though. They're being caused to do something. Next one. When they arrest you and hand you over, the word arrest there is the same as lead you. Uh, you're not going on your own initiative. Uh, while the sun was setting, all those who had any or who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. That is, uh, those people were coming and maybe volitionally, but they were being brought by somebody, caused, forced, not forced against their will. And then Luke 23, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death. Again, they're not following somebody or the signs or the gifts. They're being pushed into something. And then finally, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Uh, he couldn't see. Right? So they're, they're, for, they're bringing him. The point of it is, this idea, whoever is caused by the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So that the manifestation is you're working on holiness. But whoever has not been able to get away from that, you're being caused to do that, those are the believers. Why? Because it's an evidence it's the Spirit who's doing the work. The emphasis in this passage is not on you put to death the deeds of the flesh. Oh, there's plenty of passages in the Bible that are, the emphasis is here, you must do this. The emphasis here is if you see this happening, it's by the Spirit. That is how you know you're being led by the Spirit. We want to quantify it. How much fruit is enough? Which particular sins, right? The Holy Spirit is going to do some mystery stuff in your soul in the next couple of verses, too. The mystery part is He assures you, He testifies to your spirit that you're a child of God. He's the one who actually tells you it's cool. See, Dave, that's pretty mysterious. It's a relationship. It's not easily defined by others. But Scripture is telling us these manifestations. You hate sin and you want to be holy. And the Spirit is telling you that you're a child of God. But couldn't I be wrong about that? Yeah, you could totally be wrong about that. But you're probably not. Because that also is going to come to bear here as well. Alright, so bottom of the page. The Holy Spirit leads you to what? To obedience, to holiness. That's verses 12 to 13. That's how we know the children of God. Those who are being led by the Spirit to do what? To put to death the deeds of the flesh. 
So I just say a few things. The leading of the Spirit in this context is clearly moral. It's not, God is guiding me to the mission field. The Spirit leads you to mortify the sinful deeds of the body. The Spirit leads you to bear holy fruit. Galatians 5, we'll talk more about that in weeks to come. The Spirit leads in connection with God's Word. Okay? That's always the thing. Uh, not, the, not the leading you to do things you know, that you've manifested your own worship. The work of the Spirit is you, in you is ongoing, and the leading of the Spirit is the privilege of every child of God. <clears throat> but I don't know what God wants me to do. If you have that as your definition of leading, and He's going to guide you, then you'll, you can't know for sure. He already told you in the Bible what He wants you to do. So those who are led to do what the Bible says, and work hard on it, they're real Christians. You go, yeah, but, but how much? Some bear little fruit compared to others, some a hundredfold. Some come late in the day and receive the same pay. Let God be the objectifier in the heart of an individual as to what is and is not sufficient grace. But you will know them by their fruits. Truth. You will. Which fruits are you talking about? Make sure in judging or determining on other people's lives that when you do that you are, you are looking through the standard of what fruit I'd say it's the fruit of the Spirit That's, you'll know them by their fruits the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace long-suffering, gentleness, goodness faith, meekness, temperance against such there is no law that's the beginning place Christ-likeness and the fruits of the Spirit are evidence you go, but what about good works? We'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. All right, page five. Woo! Cruising today. Our relationship to God has changed through adoption. This is where the in internal nitty-gritty of the mysterious way that God works in the heart to convince you that you're a child of God, verses 15 to 17. For you have not received a spirit, small s, of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit, small S, of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, let me stop there. Perfect love cast out all fear. If you know the Lord as your Savior and you live in fear that you're not a believer, it's not an evidence that you're not a believer. But it is the Spirit's work to cause in you the ability to come to the Father and to not fear. To love Him. To be in His presence. It, it's, this is one of Paul's evidences that he's explaining. That it is not a spirit of fear. Because if people go, Oh man, I just need to keep the law and be a good and holy person. There's a fear of the Lord that's appropriate. But the fear that Paul's talking about here is the kind of fear that was under the wrath of this flesh and the wrath of the law. In which you never felt in His presence, that you could come to Him. He was that fearful, terrible, you know, leader, whatever, but no, I don't know the Father. Paul's saying that this evidence is, you did not receive, when you received the Holy Spirit of indwelling, who's leading you, that Spirit's not the one telling you that you should not come into His presence. That's not the one who's telling you that you're, you're terrible, you're lousy, you're, 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 you're a believer. This whole chapter is going to end with nothing can take you from away from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not even yourself. It's not that spirit that's telling you to fear. 
you know that silly little illustration I give about insurance and assurance. You know, you can buy insurance for your car. Something terrible can happen where you think you're at fault. But if you've never sourced your policy, you've never read your policy, and you've never talked to the agent or gone online. We do everything online now. But you don't know anything about it. You're going to fear that you're not covered. And so it's both end. You can be covered and not know it, if you will. And that's what Paul's saying here is, how do I know I'm covered? Because I'm told I got this policy. The Holy Spirit's a down payment. I got this. I'm insured against the day of wrath. How do I know that? Right. There's a trust, and then there's this inner sense of peace and love that comes. And you start, but you have to know the word, right? You have to know what it is and know the Father and speak to Him. That's why we cry out, Abba, Father. It's the thing that causes you to go talk to the agent. But if you never talk to the agent and you never read the policy, you don't like the Bible, those are evidences that you probably aren't insured. Because in the insurance package, it says on line three, it says, by the way, this insurance package causes in your own heart a reaction. And if you don't see the reaction, you probably don't have the insurance. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So number one, page five, Paul tells us, did I reread the text? No. I only got to verse 15. I'm sorry. For you've not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's getting better. If indeed, second time he said that, if in fact is what he's saying, if it's true, that we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Not a condition of eternal life, but a condition, if you will, on these subjects here. So let's go into that. Number one, Paul tells us that we've been changed, we are being changed, and we're going to be changed. This great change into Christ's likeness is a result of this adoption. We are free from slavery and fear. That's what he has told us. What slavery and fear? Galatians 3. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. We were in fear under the law and slavery to the law. But being shut up under faith, which was later to be revealed, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so we can be justified by faith. But we were also in slavery to sin, Galatians 4. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which by nature are no gods. Okay? But we've been freed from those. B, you're adopted as a son. John chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them he, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. I want to talk about the difference here. The word adoption uh, would not probably have come from the Jewish culture. They have the kinsman redeemer laws and stuff. So theoretically, not always, but theoretically, if a child became an orphan as such or whatever, theoretically kinsman redeemer laws would kick in and they'd be taken into the family. Paul's probably using the idea of a Roman adoption. And I use the idea of Caesar Augustus, the very Caesar who's active at the time of the birth of Christ, etc. And it is this. He was adopted. 
And adoption in Roman law was a little different than the way we look at it. Not completely, but a little different, and it is this. Augustus had just been an external part under Julius Caesar. Augustus is next, not a family member. Caesar, Julius Caesar, has a child. Probably with Cleopatra, even though it's Mark Anthony. But the whole point is he has a child. Some of you are like, oh, whatever. Okay. Julius Caesar has a child. So there's a rightful heir to the throne. But Julius Caesar leaves in his will that his adopted, that he's adopting uh, Augustus. And adoption trumps the rights of a firstborn or a born. In Roman law, the adoption puts you at the highest level of being an heir. And that's why I think in this text, Paul is connecting those dots. Not that he knew that Augustus had been, maybe he did historically. But the point of Roman adoption puts you at the highest level, brings you in from the moment. And adoption is a clear, it's not just making you one of the family members. It can also mean that you are the rightful heir. And so if you look into that, I think you'll find some fascinating stuff. I don't have time to dig deeply into Roman culture, but that is my understanding. And so I think it made sense in this context for Paul to say, you've received the spirit of adoption. See, if you were a a slave in the Roman Empire, because he uses the word slave here, you would want to be adopted. Because it's status change. It's not just becoming part of a family. It means in the Roman culture that you get to the highest level. Secondly, in adoption, is different than the way the Romans dealt with their own children. We know that Romans could, if they did not like a child when they were born, they can leave them to die. And that was part of the Roman culture. You had no obligation, according to Roman law, to keep a child. But if you adopted a child, you were legally bound to place them at full status. It was a better status than even being born in the Roman Empire. Now we could connect all these dots. It's because Romans 11 is going to talk about the olive tree and the natural root and the Jewish people brought into the Abrahamic covenant who are the natural part. And that we Gentiles have been grafted into the promises of Abraham. We're not part of the natural selection. We weren't part of the, we were part of the family, but we've been brought in at the same status and actually to the highest level of heirs when we have been grafted in under adoption. So adoption is not simply, don't look at it as God saying, I adopted you, but I got real kids. But legally, this status in the Roman Empire, written to Rome, would have been, you've been brought in at the highest level. You become heirs of all that Christ has. So, it's a beautiful picture. Entirely God's work, it's adopted, adopted through being in Christ. There's a relationship. It's not merely a religion. And privileges of sonship that had formerly existed for only Israel, Galatians 3. But there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So now we can call God Papa. We don't have to fear any longer coming into his presence. Christ is the high priest who has made full access to God. And this is the same name the Lord Jesus addressed his father with. And we can know God in an intimate way. I know I'm a little bit in a hurry, but I'd like to get as far as I can. You have assurance of your salvation. That's the point in verse 16, through the testimony of the Spirit. It's a subjective assurance accompanying the objective realities of putting away the the deeds of the flesh. The Spirit convinces you that the Word is true and that Christ is your Savior. 
the Spirit enables you to call on your Father. And now you're an heir, verse 17. Our Father is very rich. But remember, God himself is our inheritance. And not simply the things which we will possess. But you're a fellow heir with Christ. Jesus is the heir of all things. And to be a fellow heir with him means you're in on all of it. God's riches are ours only because we are in Christ. And our inheritance is completely secure committed to him against that day, and the Spirit is the first fruit of the inheritance. Uh, that's in Ephesians 4. I mean, one, again, is that he's the down payment, but just think about that. It's receiving a small stipends, if you will, towards a larger inheritance. The Holy Spirit is simply the down payment. And God's not going to go back on the contract. You know, He's already purchased the house, but he's put a massive down payment down. And he's brought some of their one to take care of it. And so that's the point. So you have a new purpose then for suffering. That's the end of verse 17 where our goal was to get to. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Remember that this is not about your salvation. Paul's already addressed that. Your, your faith, you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you're in Christ. He's dealing with matters of sanctification here. But he is dealing with the reality that you're an heir. But how do you know you're an heir? See, so he's kind of down the track. How do you know you're a believer? How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? You're going to be an heir with Christ. Well, then I would expect to begin to live as if I was an heir of the Father, that I was going to be an inheritor, and that, like Christ, he had a relationship with the Father, he cried out, Abba, Father, and like Christ, it is going to lead to suffering. Paul here, I think what Paul is doing for us, because he's about to go into the whole section 18 to 27, on three groanings, we groan, creation groans, we groan, the Spirit groans, and that this life has suffering, that there's problems in this life, there's all of that. Paul's setting us up here to say, hey, I just want you to know, it's not a cakewalk. In that war, you will suffer. But he's not talking, I don't think he's talking about general suffering. I think he's talking about suffering like Christ, for righteousness' sake. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it is an evidence that you are following Christ when you suffer persecution. Don't get you a picture of a church history persecution. They have to come and take you away and put you on this big thing. and Just know what it's like with your family. Yeah, in your workplace. That's right. Every day. And the, the people you're dealing with in your family, extended family, you already know what it's like um, to suffer for the name of Christ. And if you have no suffering, it kind of goes with these two poems I have here. So I want to end with these poems, because I get to. And only on two points. I call this first one, The Crib, the Cross, and the Crown. And it is this. Christ was in glory, but he suffered. He came to earth, fulfilled the mission God had for him. But the poem ends with, but back in glory? Oh, yeah. And then the second one is by Amy Carmichael. Of course, one of the great reminders that if we don't suffer, we have a question of have we followed very far. Right? And so the first poem, simply the crib, the cross, the crown. Holy, 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 was the cry of angels there for the one clothed in righteousness and light beyond compare. Day and night did they attend him 
and fall prostrate at his feet. For the very name of Jesus is so wondrous and sweet. How is it that he's going? The angels all did cry to be beaten, scourged, and mocked, and on a cross of wood to die. But the mercy of the Savior kept angels' legion still when he, for you and I, went up Calvary's dark hill. It is finished, was the cry. The price is fully paid. They took him from the cross, and then they laid him in the grave. But in three days he was risen and is now in heaven above, having shown the world of men that God is truly love. Holy, holy, holy is the cry of angels there for the one clothed in righteousness and light beyond compare. Day and night do they attend him and fall prostrate at his feet for the very name of Jesus is so wondrous and sweet. And then Amy Carmichael beautifully reminds us, not if we're a Christian or not, but have we gone very far with the Master? Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Lean me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts they compressed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far? Who has no wound or scar? Let's pray.